Amen. Good morning. How is everybody doing this morning? A little chilly? <laughs> a little excited? A little nervous? A little happy? I see people on the left here in the sun are a bit happier than the people in the shade, if I'm really honest. But we are here this morning because of an incredible event that took place some 2,000 plus years ago. And it is exciting to be standing here this morning declaring what an amazing story we have lying before us, that Jesus Christ is in fact risen. And I can only imagine for myself being at the original Good Friday, because every Resurrection Sunday is preceded by a not-so-good Friday at the time. And we would have been in that place wondering what on earth was going. If all of our hopes had been shattered, if all of our desires had been destroyed, wondering if everything that we had put our hope in had disappeared for good. But we read in Romans on this side of the story, Paul writes this. He says, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, if you look up any world religion, Muslim, Buddhist, whatever it is, when you look up the origins of that religion, you will find a founder with a life date that has a start and end that has been seated somewhere inside the context of the life of Christ. When you look at any religion, you will find a founder that had a life and a death. But you and I are serving a Jesus who had a life and a death and a resurrection. And what gives the resurrection significance for us as Christians is this, is that it proves Christ's identity as God. It also demonstrates God's acceptance of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And it reveals God's power and his ability to raise humanity from death. But can I say this gospel is both powerful and it's personal. I want us to imagine for a second that we are at the foot of the cross. We are sitting, we are standing on Good Friday, the first Good Friday. And we are looking up at a Jesus hanging on a cross. And above his head, there is a sign that has been written by the Roman governor. And it says, the king of the Jews. And we've heard this before, but we know that the governor put it in three languages, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. And what's significant about this picture is that we see what seems to be a defeated Christ on a cross being declared in the three world powers of the day's languages, saying that apparently this is the Jesus, the son of God. Apparently this is the king of the Jews. And I can't shake that picture of those three types of people standing at the foot of the cross and wondering what is going on. See, the Bible describes the cross as a stumbling block. 
The Bible also tells us in Proverbs 14, it says there is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. I want you to consider what the Roman standing at the foot of the cross was thinking when he was looking up at a Jesus hanging there near death. See, for the Roman, it was all about brute force, strength, domination. I don't care how you feel, what you think. I am going to overpower you and I'm going to get my way. The Roman's need was an absolute need for control. And my question for anyone listening right now is, are you a Roman? We all have the propensity to be one of these three things, but are you a bully? Christian or not? Do you seek control? Do you dominate every sphere that you are in? Do you overpower your spouse? or your family, or your friends, or your job? Are you a Roman? Because if you are, then the stumbling block of the cross for you is that you look at a Jesus who seems defeated. Or what about the Greek? When you think about the, the ancient statues that with their perfect sculpting and their specimen of human beings and their, um, the, the Olympic Games, you know, these types of things, big performing athletes um, or, or their huge contributions into, into medicine, philosophy, mathematics, science. When you think about the context of the Greek, maybe that's more connected to our culture in a sense where we are we're pretty well read as a society. But everything is sort of put together really well for the Greek. So to look at a Jesus on a cross would seem almost a little bit disgusting. Like, oh, that's not tasteful. That's not provocative. Everything's out in the open. It is gory. It is graphic. It is, ugh. The mutilated body of Christ. Jesus looking weak. Jesus being vulnerable, Jesus crying out in pain, that would have not appealed to the Greek. So if the Romans saw dis uh, defeat, the Greeks saw distaste. So my question for you is, are you a Greek? Am I a Greek? Are you obsessed with your presentation? Is everything calculated and measured, clean and proper? From the clothes we wear to what we put on our social media platforms, is everything one big presentation like the Greek? If so, the cross will make you stumble because it was not a good presentation. Instead, it was a graphic representation of what unredeemed man looks like. And finally, the Jew. Now, I think a lot of us could really identify with this one, especially in the culture that we live in. But for the Jew, it was God's chosen people. There was sort of that elitist mentality. 
Before they had Jesus on a cross, they had the Torah. They had the Bible in a sense. They memorized scripture. They did all things well. That was not my phone. My question is, are you a Jew? Do you hide in rightness? Do you secretly always feel like you take the higher ground or know something that not everybody else knows? You will stumble on the cross because Jesus put your and my wrongs on display. And they ugly, just like mine. But imagine these three people standing at the foot of the cross, looking up through their lens, through their worldview, and seeing what would allegedly be a defeated Jesus. But the exciting thing for you and I as we stand here today and we know the whole story and we know who's won the war is that we know that after every single Good Friday, there is a resurrection Sunday that proceeds. When you think about the Romans standing outside a tomb, it's like, I am going to control this situation. I'm going to dominate this situation. There is going to be no sneaky stuff with this death and alleged resurrection. Seal the tomb, put soldiers in front of the tomb. We are not even going to let this death story get out of hand. But I can imagine on that third day, can you imagine being a soldier outside that tomb? What is going on? Why? Because there was a rumbling and there was a shaking. And there was a rolling of a stone. Why? Because there was a resurrection. I want to read a little bit of John 20. It says this. I don't have the outdoor version of the Bible here where the pages are heavy. It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. See, the resurrection surprised everyone, believer and unbeliever. Because death has a way of surprising us, doesn't it? So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. You know, this word for him standing at the entrance of the tomb, looking in, it's not just him saying, just seeing and just making an observation. No, it's this word. It's theorio. In other words, this where we get our word theorized from. He is standing at the beginning, at the entrance of this tomb, and he is processing. He is saying, I see the sackcloth. I see the stuff there. I, 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 that's where Jesus should be, and he's not there. Peter was, Simon Peter was looking for an explanation. And I love what it says in Matthew 28. The angels 
say this to Mary Magdalene. He is not here. He is risen. In other words, Jesus is not where government, culture, and religion left him. See, all three of those things, when we make those our ultimatums, when we make those our attempt at fixing humanity outside of Christ, die with death. Government dies with death. Culture dies with death. Religion dies with with death. Jesus is resurrected back into life. I can imagine the picture, as we've been talking about, of humanity standing at the foot of the cross, looking up at a crucified Jesus. But I want us to look at the reaction of John when he meets the resurrected Jesus in Revelation. And this is what he says. When I saw him, Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the absolute deity, the son of God and the ever living one living in and beyond all time and space. I died, but see, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of absolute control and victory over death and of Hades. You see, it's no longer a crucified Christ, but instead a glorified Christ. The words of Jesus himself have never been more true. I am the resurrection and the life. I love what 2 Corinthians 5 says in the Passion. It says, For God made the one who did not know sin to become sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God through our union with him. But you see, the gospel is both powerful and personal. Ephesians 3, Paul knows this so well. I'm going to read it, starting in verse uh, 14. Because it's easy for us to hear the story of Jesus being resurrected and to understand it in the context of power. But I want us to transition and look at it in the context of it being a personal story to you and to me. Because Jesus said this very important, asked a very important question of his disciples. He said, who do men say that I am? Paul writes a prayer for the Ephesians. He says this, for this reason, I kneel before the father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses mere knowledge. See, this story is an amazing display of God's power. But this story is also an amazing invitation to you and I to participate in a personal encounter with this resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. 
See, when Paul is writing the height, the breadth, the length, and width, he's, he's comparing it to mere knowledge. You see, the disciples could have read the scriptures. The religious people could have read the scriptures, and they could have said, okay, well, we understand there's a Savior coming, and everything was so subjective. But then to be entered into the story in real life, to feel the things you feel, to not know what's going to happen next. That is the difference between a personal God and a powerful God. You see, the God of the Bible is both personal and powerful. He is inviting us to participate in a communion with him. It's amazing to me that John on the Isle of Patmos, the disciple who would lay his head on the shoulder of Jesus on, and hear his heartbeat and all these things. And yet when he sees the resurre- resurrected Jesus, he falls on his face as though dead. We serve an incredible God. We serve a resurrected God. We serve a God who is outside of time and space, a God which every other religion places itself in the context of his timeline. Amen? Amen. We're going to partake of communion. Mike, do you want to? We're going to partake of communion. Sorry if that was, I was excited. And we haven't done this in so long, right? So you'll find there's communion on your chair. Um. And there's all different ways to take communion, right? Never irreverently, but sometimes it's exciting to take communion. Sometimes it's somber and God reveals things. And some of the deepest things that God has done in my life, they're often not loud and crazy, but they're somber and they're deep and they're meaningful. And so as we have our, um, our communion with us now, you know, I'm reminded that Jesus did something so wonderful before he went to the cross, which his greatest final act in a sense before the cross was simply washing and serving his disciples' feet, sharing a meal with them, being humble and honest and transparent with them, being vulnerable. And so as we, as we have our um, cracker and our, and our wine with us, I wonder if I can just pray for us. And then Mike, do you want to join me? But Lord, I just want to thank you this morning for your sacrifice. Lord, I want to thank you for the amazing price that you paid by sending your son to die on a cross for us. Lord, we thank you that you demonstrated that, that passage. No greater love is this than he who lays his life down for a friend. And God, we just choose to um, honor you and focus on you and acknowledge your lordship in our lives. Lord, I thank you that we don't serve a God who controls us. But Lord, we serve a God who inspires us and who draws us near through love. God, I pray that our lives would be a sacrifice to you. That our lives would be worship to you. That our lives would be honoring to you. Lord, we thank you for your broken body and your shed blood. In Jesus' name, amen.